Across Australia, you're listening to Breakfast on RN. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has landed in India and been welcomed into traditional Hindu holy festivities. He'll meet his Indian counterpart Narendra Modi at the cricket today, but critics say the event's been heavily media managed to present a glorified view of the India government. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports. Throwing coloured powder in the air, Gujarati drummers welcome Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to the Hindu holy festivities. Mr Albanese touched down in India last night for a four-day tour. These human ties bind Australia and India. Two great democracies that have common values and that the binds between us will be even stronger going forward. Ahmedabad in India's west is Mr Albanese's first stop and his face has taken over the city. It's on billboards next to photos of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and it's towering over the entry gates at the local cricket stadium. And today will be the main event when Mr Albanese watches the first day of the Australia-India test with Mr Modi. Tickets for the first day at the Ahmedabad Stadium, which is the largest in the world, were blocked until Sunday when a few sections open to the public, angering fans like Tim Hill, who travelled all the way from New South Wales. Well, I think it sucks. Um, yeah, politics and sport don't mix. Critics like Hartosh Singh Bal say this event is being tightly controlled to present a glorified view of the Indian government. I think in India, cricket has become politics by other means. This government clearly sees the power of cricket domestically and its influence on the Indian public, and it has controlled it in the same fashion as it controls the country and its politics. The Gujarat Cricket Association has denied tickets were blocked to prioritise supporters of the Indian government. Its CEO, Diraj Jogani, says 15,000 seats were reserved for security reasons, but he expects most of the spectators will be Mr Modi's supporters. We are not blocked any ticket. Any ticket we are not blocked. The Indian government has a history of carefully managing events for visiting leaders from the West, like in 2020 when slums were covered up and Modi supporters were put on the streets to welcome US President Donald Trump. Namaste. Namaste. Critics say Mr Modi's government has cracked down on the media and human rights of minorities in India, something it has consistently denied. But Mr Albanese will have to navigate conversations on these issues carefully this week as he tries to keep building political links. These are questions that India does not wish discussed or focused on. And largely almost all foreign dignitaries have played along with this because I think they are all aware of the truth, but they would rather not go there because India is needed for other strategic reasons. This is Avani Dias in Ahmedabad reporting for AM. Australia's aged care providers are scrambling to recruit more than 22,000 workers in a matter of months to meet a federal government-imposed deadline for new standards of care. It was a Labor election promise to have round-the-clock nursing by July and to mandate minimum care minutes for residents. The aged care sector says it's an incredibly challenging deadline. National Regional Affairs reporter James Norman explains. Even in the picturesque alpine region of northeast Victoria, 
aged care providers like Alpine Health are going to great lengths to recruit workers at its facilities in Bright, Myrtleford and Mount Beauty. Its chief executive, Nick Shaw, explains. An incentive for $5,000 for um, somebody to come and work, work for us on a, on a permanent full-time basis. And we're also, as a many health services, um, supporting people with accommodation need. And what kind of accommodation support are you providing? We now um, ourselves are renting a number of properties that we can place people in and and help them transition into more permanent arrangements of their own. And it seems to be working. Alpine Health is already complying with new federal government rules requiring aged care facilities to have a registered nurse on site 24 hours a day from July and provide residents with 200 care minutes a day by October. The cost of employment is great for any small rural health service, um, but the cost of not having a competent and skilled workforce is greater. The Aged Care Royal Commission recommended the changes and Labor brought forward the deadline, but it's creating a workforce crunch, with new federal government figures predicting a shortfall of 8,400 registered nurses and 13,300 personal care workers next financial year. Tom Simonson is from the Aged and Community Care Providers Association. We cannot create workforce out of nowhere. We cannot force people to work in rural or remote communities or in aged care full stop if they can earn more money working in the public hospital system. The deadline for these new care standards is looming. Do you think that the aged care sector can achieve it? I'd love to think that we could by the deadline on the, on 1 July and also in October for the 200 minutes that we could have every single worker that we needed. I don't think it's realistic to say that we will. Smaller facilities with fewer than 30 beds can apply for a year-long exemption but the government's hoping it has a cure for what's become a chronic worker shortage in aged care, a 15% wage rise and a return to regular skilled migration levels. Annie Butler is the Secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation. We're now finally starting to get some movement there with the Fair Work Commission's decision of an interim pay increase of 15% in recognition of the true value of the work. Tom Simonson agrees but isn't confident it's a short-term fix. We continue to do everything we can, but if we can't find registered nurses, you know, at the end of the day, we, we are not miracle workers. Tom Simonson there from the Aged and Community Care Providers Association ending that report from Jay Norman. State election campaigns often focus on political promises for homeowners who are looking for breaks on things like stamp duty or incentives to get into the housing market. With just over a fortnight until the New South Wales election, the major parties are this time specifically targeting people who rent. Our reporter Catherine Gregory has been speaking with some of those renters in Sydney. In the southwestern Sydney suburb of Reevesby, Joe's treating himself to lunch with his daughter but he's watching his budget because the rent for his one-bedroom apartment further west in Liverpool has been steadily increasing. Like I'm nearly 64, so, um, you know, I've got to keep walk, uh, working. I come by. With the election coming up, we've got, you know, the, the major political parties, you know, offering some sort of solutions, you know, one of them being banning unfair evictions. Is there anything, though, that would sway your vote? Well, at the moment, the Labor is offering what we need. Uh, as renters. The New South Wales Labor opposition is also promising to ban the practice of rent bidding, which encourages people to secretly offer more than the listed price. It's also suggesting a portable bond scheme so there's no overlapping payments if you move 
and it's vowing to have more social and affordable homes in new developments. But this man who lives in the nearby suburb of Condell Park doesn't think it'll stop unfair rent rises. It's actually just gone up uh, this month for the first time. It means he's having to help out his adult daughter pay her rent. She's, uh, you know, she's on a single wage. I help her as much as I can, but nothing can do so much. What, what do you think needs to happen to help renters out? Uh, rent should be capped to stop the landlords taking advantage of the, uh, those who are struggling. The New South Wales Greens is offering a rent freeze, along with promises of longer-term leases, an end to unfair no-grounds evictions and more affordable housing. It sounds appealing to this mother who's facing rent rises in Riverwood. I think everybody's feeling it, but I think for those that are renting, yeah, I think they're getting the most of it as well. Would housing be a big issue for you in terms of how you're going to vote in the election? Yes, 100%. Of course, I'll be like, if they're going to offer some more affordable houses um, and not just a shoebox, then yeah, of course. The coalition government is also pitching a rental bond rollover scheme, an extension to notice periods at the end of leases and a reasonable grounds model for evictions. It's already made it illegal for agents to encourage rent bidding, but prospective tenants can still do it. For mid-twenties couples Serena and Josh, it's helpful, but not enough. They've now moved in with his parents in Reevesby. It's actually a really good opportunity to save. So you're looking to buy next or rent again? Well, we were hoping to buy, but that dream's kind of squashed. So, Is there anything that stands out to you from any of the major parties or anything you think politicians should be doing about this housing situation? They should be putting a bit more guidelines and regulations that homeowners, investment property owners must follow. The New South Wales election is on March 25th. Catherine Gregory reporting there and you're listening to AM and it's 19 past seven. Coming up on RM Breakfast, Patricia Carvellis interviews the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher. In a remote corner of Papua New Guinea, police officers are being accused of locking people in shipping containers at a logging site. The ABC has visited the community and met multiple people who say they've been locked in the containers or threatened with it because of their opposition to logging in the area. Our PNG correspondent Natalie Whiting has more. Tensions are running high in this remote part of Papua New Guinea. People have gathered to voice concerns about logging operations and the role of police officers. If landowners resist, police threaten us with their guns. You still resist? They lock you in a shipping container. They allege police are brought here to Adwaki in the upper Sepik Basin by a Malaysian logging company, Global Elite Limited, and claim the police intimidate those who oppose the operations. Local landowner Luke Amil invited a law firm from Port Moresby to see if they have a case to take to court. Ah, when I was beaten by police and locked up in the shipping container, I felt so worried because I wasn't a criminal. I'm an innocent man. Because of my rights to my customary land, I was assaulted. I was inside the container and full of sweat. I wanted to relieve myself, but how could I come out? The company provides logistics, food and accommodation for the officers. But in a statement, Global Elite denies that it's using police to intimidate and threaten people and says it's appalling to suggest the police are tools of the company. It says it has an arrangement with PNG Police for officers to be deployed to the area because lawlessness is a daily occurrence. But for years, the country's police commissioner, David Manning, has been saying police are banned from working at logging sites. 
On a scratchy phone line, he says he's torn up any agreements put in place by his predecessors with logging companies across PNG. We are very much committed in, in supporting business by creating a safe and secure environment, but not to act as armed thugs or a private police force. Despite that, he says some rogue officers are continuing to go. There's a, a continuous concern about uh, the actions or participation of members of the force in, in, these, in these logging camps. The company says because there are no police cells in the area, the shipping containers are used as holding cells for serious offenders before they're conveyed to proper facilities, adding that, quote, murderers and rapists can't be allowed to just roam freely. Environmental activist Florence Tangit, who lives in a village downstream, travelled up to the area to investigate. The time I was there, our photos were taken by the police officers. We were almost placed inside the containers. They threatened to lock us up. They knew we were not from there and wanted to know why we were there. The use of shipping containers has shocked the police commissioner. That is unacceptable. The company says the containers are ventilated and have an outhouse. This is Natalie Whiting in Adwaki for AM. And you can see Natalie's story on Foreign Correspondent 8 o'clock tonight on ABC TV or on iView. Residents of Western Australia's East Kimberley are desperately waiting for a Defence Force plane to arrive today with fresh food on board. Supplies have been running low for days after floodwaters cut off the region's only freight route. From Kununurra, Ted O'Connor reports. Flooding and food shortages are nothing new for Kununurra resident Maria bolton Magne, But this time, it's different. Where I'm living right now, it feels a little bit like no man's land. To be honest, it hasn't been this bad for a couple of decades. Uh, we've had times where the road does shut for a week or two here and there. We're quite well prepared for that sort of thing. We know that it's coming. You know, there are a lot of joys about living remote in the country and these are one of the things that you just accept as part of your way of life. But it has been going on for quite a long time now, a couple of months of struggling to try and get fruit and vegetables. The only highway linking the East Kimberley to the rest of WA has been cut off since January when record flooding devastated the neighbouring Fitzroy Valley. Grocery trucks have been coming through the Northern Territory, but that route was also hit by floodwaters last week. Maria says locals are getting frustrated and they're down to their last supplies. I must say, as a working mother, it's very difficult to plan family meals and it becomes quite taxing on your life that you're constantly on the edge of what can I buy today, what can I make on this, constantly responding to what food you can get rather than being proactive about it or planning or menu planning and those sorts of things. There are high rates of poverty in the outback area and this week Indigenous organisations haven't been able to provide food relief packages. And since Sunday there have been little to no fresh fruit and vegetables on supermarket shelves in Katanara. At Chris Burke's store, barely any perishables are left. Very, very little fresh food at all going through. There's virtually no milk. There's a bit of margarine and a few other uh, dairy lines. We, as a store, put limitations on uh, yesterday, so things are virtually one of any particular items. Look, we've had a bit of flack from some customers, but 90% of the customers are understanding and that sort of stuff that we're trying our best to share it around. He expects a huge rush of customers when food supplies come. The first of two Australian Defence Force planes is expected to arrive today. 
carrying 20 tonnes of fresh food, with barges coming by sea from Darwin to follow. The state government says it spent a week trying to charter a private aircraft, prompting criticism from the opposition that the response should have been swifter. Here's Premier Mark McGowan. We know it's been pretty difficult for people in Kununurra and Wyndham and surrounds. Uh, we just want to get food in there as quickly as we can, uh, and that's what we're doing. So uh, we've worked as hard as we can to get food in there as quickly as we can, and we expect the situation will alleviate over the coming days. Back at Maria's house, she's just glad food drops are confirmed and on their way. What I think was probably lacking was some communication from the government. That was probably the hardest thing for us as residents is that we just didn't know when is this going to end. Kununurra resident Maria Bolton-Magnay ending that report from Ted O'Connor and Isabel Masali. Resettling in a new country can be a daunting experience, but over the past six months, about 100 refugees have been adapting to life in Australia with the help of local communities who sponsor them. For the first 12 months, locals help the refugees find somewhere to live, a job, even a car, while also guiding them on how to access education and health services. The federal government says 1,500 people will be settled under the program over four years and already there are calls for it to expand. Mary-Louise Vince reports. Games of handball and sharing canteen treats are all part of primary school life for most kids growing up in Australia. But their new experiences for Syrian refugees, 10-year-old George and 8-year-old Eleanor Adald, who've only been living in Gosford on the New South Wales Central Coast for six months. Neither had been to school before, but it hasn't taken them long to settle in. Very excited, but we was a little bit worried because we don't know anything about it. And now everything is good in Australia. The children and their parents, Shadi and Ramia, are among the first refugees to be resettled under the new Community Refugee Integration and Settlement Pilot, known as CRISP. It's a program where a group of local volunteers provides hands-on support to a refugee family from the moment they arrive. And Shadi Adald says it's been invaluable. From first day go to Australia, Everyone smiles, smiles, smiles. Hello, welcome. Yeah. I, I speak uh, to everyone. I am sorry, I'm not good speaking English. No problem, no problem, welcome. It's very different from their life in northern Iraq and the Gosford locals have been helping them find accommodation, open bank accounts, enrol in school and TAFE and even helping them clock up hours behind the wheel as they learn to drive. Shane Davey is the group's spokesperson. It's been an absolute blessing to help this family start build a new life when they've been through so much. They're so courageous and resilient to start something like this. According to the charity helping to deliver this pilot scheme, about 100 refugees have settled over the past six months with the support of 22 sponsor groups in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania and Queensland. Another 57 groups are preparing for arrivals, with 1,500 refugees expected to come here over the next four years under the CRISP program. The federal government has promised to increase that to 5,000 places in addition to Australia's humanitarian intake, but Immigration Minister Andrew Giles isn't sure when. There's real demand in the Australian community and regional communities in our suburbs and inner cities too for people who want to make a difference. So we've just got to find the way to quickly scale this up, making sure, of course, that everyone resettled gets appropriate supports on the way. Shadi and Ramia are big supporters of the program. Thank the group for every day. Forever. Forever. The University of Queensland is doing a review of the pilot program. 
which is expected to be handed to the minister in coming weeks. Mary Louise Vince reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.